Hey everyone, I'm back with Podside Picnic. This is Connor, and I'm here with Pete. And today, we're going to be talking about Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler, which, well, I'll let Pete tell you a little bit what that's about. Uh, well, one thing you didn't say, Connor, is uh, we're doing these a little out of order, but I would like to welcome everyone to what should be our 100th episode. So... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so uh, I think before I go directly into the book, I'm, I want to talk a little bit about who Octavia Butler was and a little bit about her backstory, because, I mean, it's it's a really interesting one. I mean, there's a good argument to be made that that's not central to who an author is. But when you get a good one, you get a good one, you know, um, Octavia Butler, uh, well, uh, born in California, her Father, father shined shoes for a living, and her mother was a, a maid in somebody else's house. And her father died very young, and her initial memories are of living in other people's houses as part of the cleaning staff. And one of the things she said as a writer is that one of the things that she really wanted to communicate with her writing was that feeling of awkwardness and embarrassment of not being able to use the front door. So that was really important to her. And she got it out of this, this formative time. Uh, other things about her, uh, she used to uh, like when her mom was cleaning hotel rooms and that sort of thing, she used to bring her along and bought her a typewriter to distract her. And she used to write little stories about kids who had befriended a talking horse. And the interesting thing is Octavia realized later that these stories she wrote, she was the horse. Like, so she, um, yeah, just sort of this creative talent. She's always messing around with things, even at that age. Um, I, uh, I mean, she was born in the forties, so I want you to picture or try and remember what movies were like in the fifties, particularly science fiction movies. She started watching science fiction films like, uh, Mars needs women kind of stuff. And her reaction to it is a, this is really bad. B, this is interesting and I can do better. And so she was about seven or eight when she decided that she wanted to be a science fiction writer. And it was based upon watching these films and going, oh, my God, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. Um, she uh, uh, she did she did the scrape by thing to get an education like uh, she was like a chicken feed inspector. She she made shoes like all, all of the things you would picture somebody trying to hard scrabble to make it work would do. And what happened to her was except that was exceptional that really made the difference is she got discovered by Harlan Ellison. So um, if you don't know Harlan Ellison, man, that'll probably be episode 75. I don't know. But uh, Harlan Ellison was a writer predominantly known for two things. The first is he's one of the, the titans of writing science fiction TV scripts really good at it. And a lot of things you went out there, uh, a lot of things that you've seen that are science fiction-y, there has to be a better term. I'm sorry, Connor, uh, were made by, by him. <laughs> um, but the other thing he was known for was a short story called uh, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. But let me get back to Octavia. She, she went to a writer's workshop. He, he read her short story, 
thought it was crap, just hated it, but loved her imagery, really saw something special there. So much so that he um, helped fund her visit to uh, future writers' workshops to try and develop her as an author. And from there, she took off. Over the course of her career, she wrote 10 books, 11 books if you count the one she disavowed, sort of a secret level of Octavia Butler. And one of the ones towards the end is the one we're talking about today. And that book is Parable of the Sower. Um, Parable of the Sower was a trilogy. She only wrote two of the books before she died. She wrote Parable of the Sower, followed by Parable of the Talents. Parable of the Trickster we're never going to see. But the basic idea behind the book is um, we're in the near now and it's terrible. Uh, people live in walled enclaves. You are either extremely rich. You're in a hard scrabble middle class where, y- you know, you're you're just barely holding on or you're uh, aimlessly wa- wandering the streets. Uh, slavery is a thing. Uh, the United States is falling apart, is basically under a religious dictatorship. It's a mess. And it's about one woman, uh, one very young woman, growing up in this and going from uh, middle-class survivor to street kid on a journey to founding her own religion and attempting to turn everything around. Um, it's... a like it or don't like it, and I happen to like it, it's it's a fairly unique book. Um, I, I can't think of one that's an amazing journey like this that basically stars a prophet. Yeah, I mean, unique is definitely a word that comes to mind for me, too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, maybe in a slightly different way, but yeah, I mean, I, I was actually going back over this after I finished it to try to find a representative passage uh, for like, what are the concerns of, um, of this novel and how would I summarize it for someone? And I found one early on that I kind of like, it's just a random uh, couple paragraphs here that I'll read. Sure. So this is about um, one of the children. This is early on in the book. One of the children that lives in their walled community of sort of what used to be the middle class and is now, very proletarianized, but still has something to defend. And it's people in Southern California living behind a wall and, you know, trying to grow their own food and getting a little bit of work and all this stuff. So uh, one of the children in the community who's three years old has been killed um, by a stray bullet. So I saw Tracy take Amy into the house and shut the door. Yet somehow Amy wound up outside again, wound up near the front gate, just opposite the Garfield Bolter Dory house. Jay Garfield found her there when he came out to investigate what he thought was another bundle that someone had thrown over the gate. People toss us things sometimes, gifts of envy and hate. A maggoty dead animal, a bag of shit, even an occasional severed human limb or a dead child. Dead adults have been left lying just beyond our wall. But these were all outsiders. Amy was one of us. Someone shot Amy right through the metal gate. It had to be an accident, accidental hit because you can't see through our gate from the outside. The shooter either fired at someone who was in front of the gate or fired at the gate itself, at the neighborhood, at us and our supposed wealth and privilege. Most bullets wouldn't have gotten through the gate. It's supposed to be bulletproof. But it's been penetrated a couple of times before, high up near the top. Now we have six new bullet holes in the lower portion. Six holes and a seventh dent. 
a long, smooth gauge where a bullet had glanced off without breaking through. Now, that's pretty brutal. That's pretty intense. <laughs> uh, it's luxuriating in a very kinetic way in the sort of the tactile reality of uh, the death, the accidental, brutal, pointless death of a young child. And <laughs> not to simplify too much, but Parable the Sower is kind of like that <laughs> for 350 pages. Um, it's, look, again, it's about a prophet who has a vision, who has hope, who's very talented and very resilient. And uh, she is, Lauren uh, Olamina is her name, and she is very gifted and very interesting. And she endures and leads. So she's a figure of inspiration and aspiration for sure. Um, I just want to make it clear that this book, for instance, for her to get on the road, which we can kind of feel happening, for her to actually, for things in this community to fall apart and for the prophet to get out into the world and start uh, sowing her seeds, so to speak, um, it takes about half the book. So you have about 160 pages of things are just getting worse and worse and worse. People are making the same kind of mistakes over and over again. You have adults who are older than her saying, oh, it'll get better. We'll figure it out. And the prophet's like, nah, no. And that's kind of her attitude throughout is like, she's the one looking at older people and more naive people and being like, you don't get it. It's not going to get better. We have to fend for ourselves. We have to find a new way, um, et cetera, et cetera. And I could keep going on about this, but again, it's a book that stages this sort of repetitive, these repetitive crises within a larger crisis that stages the kind of hopelessness and the kind of vulnerability um, that you might feel in this world. And I think it's very realistic in that way. I mean, rather than, I, I think from a storytelling point of view, the important point here is, you know, if you were writing this now as a movie or a book or any piece of narrative art, I think that you would be pushed by agents and editors in the market generally. It's like, all right, Get this person on the road in like 30 to 40 pages. <laughs> like, don't sure. don't do this for 160 pages. Get moving. Have the thing, you know, we know things are gonna fall apart. Just have them fall apart. And Butler doesn't do that. And I think that's a really radical choice in some ways to depict in exhaustive detail the kind of the numbing helplessness and the repetitive mistake making. I think one thing is that there's this constant seesawing in the story. Characters are always learning the same things over and over again because they're always hopeful that things will go differently. And the role of the prophet is complex because she has a very gimlet-eyed view of how this world works and how brutal it is. But she also fundamentally believes that people working together under the precepts of her new religion can bring something new into the world. Um, and that dialectic plays out throughout the story, and that's an interesting dynamic. But like, even right to the end, without giving away the story, even right to the end, it's like, oh, Things are worse than we thought. Uh, we're in worse situation than we thought. We have less than we thought, and we have to keep going. Am I doing this justice, Pete? Oh think? yeah, absolutely. I think um, one one of the things we're stumbling in here, and I do find it fascinating, is there's a question of taste. Like I I think um, uh, at the risk of putting words in your mouth, I think you don't like the choice. I, I think I think you acknowledge it's well done, but like you, you don't like the book. Well, I think this gets to the heart of where I have to have some humility as a reader, because it is not the way I would have done things or the way I choose to do things. But again, she's doing such an interesting job staging exactly what you said, which is that feeling of, and this is from the point of view of of Butler. Of course, she you know as so her her author bio in this copy of the book that I have says bluntly. 
Octavia Butler was the first black female science fiction writer to gain international prominence. Full stop. Uh, and she was. And as yeah. you said, she grew up very working class, uh, born in the 40s uh, in a segregated country. And she's trying, she's, she's you know, there, there's, of course, there's a deep element here of, like you said, not, not being able to use the front door. And I think what she's doing, I think what she's trying to do, um, I, I sense at least, uh, you know, is extrapolate from that, extrapolation being the keyword in science fiction, uh, extrapolate from that into a dystopian future and say, all right, well, this is not the segregated U.S. of the 40s, but it's a world in which, so I think this book is set in 2025 to 2027. So what is the near future from mm-hmm. now? So let's right around now, let's say. And hopefully in eight years, things won't be as bad as this book depicts, but <laughs> who knows? Um, I, I'm not betting either way. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, uh, just, just as, a, as a side note here, uh, the book is very focused on water and running out of water in Southern California and the Southwestern U.S. And uh, folks, I don't want to scare anyone, but <laughs> <laughs> um, Pete's in Vegas, so we're going we're gonna to hope that Pete is going to be okay. But uh, we're we're we're, uh, uh, we're definitely saving our pool water for sure. Right. Uh, just like 28 days later, put out some plastic tubs when it rains. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, and I think that she's very interested in, in in saying, all right, not only is this a dystopian world in which things are falling apart, it's also that it's it's mundanely dystopian, right? That the characters, as bad as things are. The, the adults who are initially alive in this story and who are guiding this protagonist's world, they understand that it's a brutal world, but they're, like, still going to work. Like, the protagonist's father, who's very important and does not survive. I don't know if that's a big spoiler. He, I think he still works at a college. He's a professor, like, part-time. Yes. And in the community, he's a preacher. He's a leader. He's an intellectual. He's all of these things. And it's not like he's saying, oh, everything's going to get better all, all of a sudden, but generally it's like, well, they're still having presidential elections, for instance. It's like, well, if we let this guy president, things might get better. If this and this happens, things might get better. If we change these things, it can go back to the way it was. Everyone's thinking like somehow we'll get back to where we were, right? There's most of the characters, I guess the point is most characters in this story are reactionary in the basic sense that they want to go back to a golden age. Whereas the protagonist, what makes her a prophet is she's saying, we're never going back. Her mantra is kind of a quasi Buddhist thing about God is change. Mm-hmm. Um, everything changes, everything has changed and that changes neither good nor bad. It just happens and you have to accept it. And again, I think that the, the mundanity of the misery and the repetitiveness of it gets some, is, is a very radical storytelling choice because it helps us understand. It, it gives us a view of kind of the, how mundane in some ways our own miseries are that are not identical to these or maybe not my miseries, but the miseries that are out there in the real world in a somewhat less dystopian reality. And so I respect it, even though it's not the choice I would have made. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, it, it actually, one of the things I love the most about Octavia Butler is that she is not interested in entertaining you. She is interested in like, uh, it's like if, if you, if you catch a, a pet making a mess on the floor, like what they used to do was make them smell it. Like that's what she does with her books. Like, she is like, look at what you are doing. Like, what I am writing here is a direct result of your actions. Pay attention. And it is it is raw, and it is unpleasant, and it is compelling. 
It really speaks to me. Did you catch like when they were talking about the presidential campaign, you had like boring candidacy number one and then the candidacy from the preacher who wanted to make America great again? Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's there are aspects of this that are very uncomfortable. I think this book came out in 1993. So, you know, I was what, two and a half years old when this book came out um, a generation ago. But yeah, I mean, like like I said, we're probably not going to be that far gone in 2027 but like the fact that i'm sitting here in 2019 and saying could we have a water crisis 10 years from now in parts of the u.s i mean potentially i hope not but and and the make america great again stuff i mean the presidential politics stuff it's like i think the important thing to realize here and have some humility about is to say like the kind of ambivalence around presidential politics like you know pete and i are both essentially educated professional class cisat white guys and so and we follow the news very closely and we're on Twitter and we're like, you know, we care who the president is in a, in a fundamental way. We think that it's going, you know, that it's this big thing in which many things hinge. But simply saying like that's a charade and it's always been a charade and it's even more of a charade now as this story does. And yet the candidates are using this incredibly reactionary language like we have to get back to this golden age. I mean, yeah, that's that's how it is for a lot of people now and how it's always been. Right. And um, mm-hmm. sorry, what were you going to say? Oh, no, I, I was I was just going to agree with you. I think that's absolutely right on. And one of the things when you uh, when you look at uh, what she's writing and the history of her writing. Uh, OK, I need to do a small digression and I'm, ma- I'm making a point I think is important um, in in a previous series. There is an alien race that basically uh, saves humanity in a very uncomfortable way. And their message to us is basically we are uh, humankind is essentially broken on a genetic level because we have two traits which are absolutely contradictory. And that is we are obsessively hierarchical and we are intelligent. And those things cannot coexist comfortably in the same species. And she believes that like that. That's not a story. That's a consistent voice of the author throughout her books. And so that whole we seek to dominate and enslave one another is is a is just sort of an ongoing up jumps the devil again and again, particularly in this book and its sequel. And it is unbearable. I will admit that even with Parable of the Sower, which I love, I I would read 50 words at a, 50 words, 50 pages at a time, set it down, go smell some flowers and come back to it the next day. I could not one day this book, not because it's hard to read, but because it's brutal to read. Yeah. And I think that gets to the the, the highest compliment uh, that I can pay Butler. I'm not aware of many writers who, as you said, she's a she's a genre writer um, who was who became a big hit in you know mass cultural genre fiction in her lifetime. And remains a major, widely read figure. Um, really, I think for contemporary readers, one of the most respected sci-fi writers. Period. And she did all of that uh, in a form that is predicated on entertainment above all else. Sorry, in a genre that's predicated on that. I should say um, <laughs> she did that, like you said, by with a resolute will to make you uncomfortable, to make you not only intellectually aware, but sort of emotionally and even viscerally aware in her stories of all of the bad things that we have made, that we have made mundane and routine or that are just maybe ineluctably mundane and routine. 
and to make you feel that through, through the course of the whole story and never fully let up on you and never dance away from it, never get cute. Uh, and to do to do to have that much res, to have that much resolve are making people uncomfortable, and making people ask the most pessimistic kind of questions. Absolutely. And to manage to entertain people enough in this one that's supposed to be entertainment, <laughs> that is a really I don't know that anyone else has really matched that. Yeah. I mean, what do you think? Has anyone who who would you compare to Butler in that way? If anyone, uh, Thomas Deesh. That's the only one I can think of. Um, he was uh, a, a number of his books are about the extinction of mankind. Uh, I don't know who he is. Can you expand on that a little bit? Um, yeah, yeah. He was, um, he was one of the, uh, oh gosh. Okay. What, what he is most known for, and you were, you were just going to vomit in horror, but what he is most known for is that he wrote the script for the brave little toaster. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) But yeah, I know. But he wrote, uh, oh, like camp concentration, which is, it's about, uh, you know, the U.S. is in the middle of a war and we develop a disease. And this disease does, two, it's, it's a variant of syphilis and it does two things. It makes you uh, a genius on, on, a, on, on a level that's basically incomprehensible, you know, godlike intelligence effectively. And it kills you in about a month and a half. Nice. <laughs> and and so what they start doing is they give it to prisoners. And this is about one of the people in those prison camps that is being made into a genius. I mean, that's that's Thomas Deesh in a nutshell. Um, we should we should read him sometime, preferably one of his shorter books, because I don't like crying. <laughs> well, I, now you've got me interested. Um yeah, the fact that there's that there's just not many comparisons you can make uh, that are this. I mean, like again, Le Guin, for instance, I think is relatively like similar, like perhaps even more cerebral in a way, um, and maybe you know, arguably more polished, but similarly uh, unflinching in certain ways at least. But she's definitely not as depressing as Butler, at least in my experience. Yes, and yeah, I think that's true. Well. Ca- that um, I always want to do a bibliography, and I won't go crazy here, but I do want to mention one book, and it's not as a recommendation. It's sort of as a starting point of understanding Butler's fiction. Um, I believe it was her second book. She wrote a book called Kindred, and it was a time travel book about a woman who had to go back in time, an African-American woman who had to go back in time and save the life of her white slaver ancestor. Oh, boy. And I, it is, it is an incredibly powerful work. And it's like, I strongly recommend it to anybody who can stand it. I, I just don't have the guts, man. I have read it once. I can't do it again. It is it is powerful on a level that just flays the flesh off your body. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I actually would be interested to read Kindred. I've heard a lot of things about it. So that would probably be where I would go back to Butler, um, most likely. Uh, mm-hmm. Let me ask you something about timing here. So this one came out in 93. You said she was born in the 40s. She unfortunately died relatively young, mm-hmm. I think in her 50s. Um so, okay, so she wrote, what that means is that she wrote through both the New Wave era and the cyberpunk era of sci-fi. Would you place her in either movement or in any particular category, and how does she relate to those moments in sci-fi? That's, that's, 
That's a perfect question. Um, Octavia Butler to say, you know, I never knew what she wanted to be called. It's like I've thought about her so much of the year over the years that I want to call her Octavia, but like she doesn't know me from Adam. So I, I guess I should go with with Ms. Butler, right? I, I, I think that as a general rule, it's OK to call our authors by their first names. Uh, okay, I don't know, I don't know if William Gibson goes by Billy day to day, but maybe in this pod yeah. he will. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, uh, Octavia uh, was, uh, yeah, she, she was actively writing during the new wave and actively writing during the cyberpunk, but she was, she was on her own island. She, she definitely did not, uh, it's very clear that she did not enjoy interacting with other people publicly. She was very much a loner, and that included her intellectual life. So, like, she was aware of these movements, but she wasn't really paying attention to them. Except, uh, you know, like authors reached out to her, she would, of course, politely reach back. When when it was uh, obligatory to go to a convention, she would go. But, like, she was definitely not a movement person, and her writing doesn't reflect an attempt to involve herself with anybody else. So she was kind of pulling a Le Guin uh, where she was just doing her own thing. Yes, yes. Um, and interestingly, there is a movement in sort of in the middle of all this that she has become attached to. And I never heard her speak about it either way. And that is Afrofuturism. And um, there's, a, there's a lot of scholarship out there about Afrofuturism, but it's basically an attempt to build, well, a... Uh, a future with a role for black people in it using science fiction, comics, film, all of that sort of thing. So um, there were a lot of people who have who have labeled her as an Afrofuturist writer. And, um, you know, she never spoke to it. So that's as may be like she might view herself that way. But one of the very interesting things about her 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 writing and her commentary about herself is that she has always made a point of creating mixed communities of vulnerable people that are combinations of aliens and humans of of uh different genders like there there's a book where she invented a, an additional four or five genders to give you some idea and she is she's very much not interested in having a a group of people in who's a community in her books by race by ethnicity, by anything else. Like if you think about Parable of the Sower, she really goes out of her way to make everybody different that goes on that pilgrimage with Lauren or everybody in her starting place. She she calls out that they're from all over the place. And it's very much a part of her writing style to do that. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, well, like you just mentioned that everyone in Lauren's kind of growing group of disciples is uh, it's very multiracial um, and that seems very deliberate. Yes. And there's a lot of discussion about race in the novel that, um, you know, that race, racial hierarchies and racism have, if anything, been intensified, perhaps predictably in this in this crumbling future um, and that the character's trying to counter that. And it's it's handled. Um, I think one of the major <laughs> One of the major adjectives I would attach to Butler's approach is it's all handled very 
pragmatically in the sense that her protagonist is a fundamentally pragmatic person who spends a lot of time thinking and talking about, all right, what kind of pack do I have to put together for emergencies? How are we going to farm for sweet potatoes or whatever? Right. How are we going to address these concrete problems? How do I become a better shot? And how do we address weaponry? What do I spend our money on? All of it is extremely um, pragmatic in a way that I think can be rare in genre fiction. Because again, this is, this is to me is about showing you the granular, the granular miseries uh, and struggles that I, that we have managed in our society to make mundane only more so, um, and yeah, and, and I think the way she depicts like th- this group of people who are suspicious of one another on a lot of different axes, maybe for some of them race is part of it, gender is part of it, uh, different backgrounds that sh- some of the people they get together with are former slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, by the way, important thing to mention about the protagonist, she's what's called a sharer, means she has a kind of hyper empathy where if she hurts someone or she's near someone who's hurt, she feels their pain. And, you know, they find out another person who's like that or other people who are like that. Um, anyway, all these different axes. And it's so much of the book is about, like, how do we navigate this mixed group? How do we navigate the challenges of, oh, people will get together and they're going to have sex and they're going to get pregnant while we're wandering across the country. With no food. And, well, <laughs> right. It's like, well, we're just going to have to deal with that. And these are, again, I think these are things that are underexplored in genre fiction, um, perhaps because so much of it is written by men who are just kind of wave their hands at that stuff and expect someone else to do it. And and this story, to be clear, is about the someone else who's supposed to actually think about that stuff. That's who the protagonist is, Right. Um, that makes sense. Yeah, that that's perfect. I, I mean, I think fundamentally, like one of the few positive messages that worms their way through her works and this work in particular is that there is hope if we all try and cooperate and work together. But that's probably not going to happen. Like that's her message. And it, yeah, if we go ahead. Oh, uh, go ahead. I. I I, I, I reached the end there. <laughs> oh, it's just, it's, you're right. It's if we cooperate, but it's also crucially if we cooperate with like a really clear headed, and I'm going to again say pragmatic view of what needs to be done. Like you have to take stock of everything. Every, like there's just so many scenes in this novel that are about like, all right, we could either buy this, this many beans or we could buy ammo for the gun. And that it's like that over and over and over again. And I mean, again, it's not, that's not so much what I enjoy in fiction, but it's a radical, interesting choice to have characters going through that rather than like characters who are quasi superheroes. Um, well, um, you know, we talk we talk a lot on this podcast about, you know, uh, writers and developing the toolbox and so on. If if uh, if a writer approaches so or what do you think they can learn from? It? You know, I think I'm still processing that. I think that I've. It, it would be a matter of. Uh, I think that learning learning to not be afraid of making those radical storytelling choices, learning to move away from the pressure of, all right, I have to get my character on the road within a very few, a few dozen pages, essentially like learning, moving away from the cookie cutter precepts of how do you get characters in motion? How do you, how do you start the story? And to think, to, to say to yourself, I think I can do an entertaining, captivating genre valid, whatever that means story. Um, <laughs> that, that is going, that where I'm going to do things that are as radical as saying, I'm going to luxuriate, uh, in a really dark way in this kind of slow burning, falling apart in 
you know, really bring you through what is the, the, what is the numbing and repetitive misery going on here. And I think that's very bold. And it's something that I'm going to think about. I think that I, I don't think that I'll ever write like that, but I think that it's, it's basically that interesting kind of inflection point there where I exactly, exactly the things that make me uncomfortable or make me not necessarily love sewer, uh, just at the level of enjoyment um, are, are the things that I don't want to learn from because I think that there's so much interesting stuff there that you can take away that you can think about, well, this may not be the choice that you love or the choice you'd make, but I think you, you have to admire Butler's resolve to um, essentially to immerse. I, I think you have to, I think you most have to admire her willingness to immerse you in feelings you are not going to want to have almost absolutely certainly. maybe someone does i don't want to speak for everyone but for <laughs> me it, for me it's tough it's more fun to read ender's game and imagine being the the super child right uh well like fundamentally connor you are a a cheerful person it's one of the things that makes you like uh, uh yeah, yeah you're 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 like a, a a rare collectible on Twitter, like an actual happy guy. And it, it totally makes sense to me that you have um, difficulty relating to Octavia's writing style, because I mean, if, if her writing connects to her as a person in any way, it's exceedingly clear. She's a, she's a fundamentally unhappy person. Yeah. Although I might complicate that a little bit and say that I, I get where you're, you're getting that from. Uh, I I don't know enough as much about her as you do. I, I I would say that what I I feel secure in saying is not so much that I know that she's an unhappy she was an unhappy person, as that she had acquired a belief that that honest art was going to be brutally pessimistic in certain ways at least, and that she was then trying to work through that um, in ways that were not just pure nihilism and pessimism and that's an interesting set of impulse so that's what i see in this book at least um yeah i mean it's funny that you think I, i'm such a cheery guy i'm not trying to like drop a bomb here and say that i'm not but i i definitely do think that i actually so actually this is an interesting this is a useful uh useful dig- digression perhaps a novel that i was thinking about a lot while i read this was um colson whitehead's the Underground Railroad, which is one that I'll make you read at some point, probably. Now, Colson Whitehead, that. yeah, I think I think you'd enjoy it. Now, Colson Whitehead is interesting because he's a contemporary um, Black American writer who dabbles in what he uses the tools of what of what you might call speculative fiction or even sci-fi. He's definitely regarded as a literary writer, and the Underground Railroad won, I believe, both the National Book Award and the Pulitzer, which is very rare. And so that was obviously a massive commercial hit and a critical hit and, and hit on every level. And I've met Colson, by the way. He's a very nice, very charming guy. Um, you know, and why was I thinking about? Go ahead. I was just going to say, I'm such a savage. Sometimes I'm thinking about this, and I don't know if I could name a Pulitzer Prize winning book that I've read. I'm sure I have, but I just like, that's, that's not where I look. And so it's really interesting to me to have this conversation. Yes, I would love to read this book. Yeah, and I, I think you should. I think it's definitely worth it. I bring it up simply because uh, the Underground Railroad is, it takes the history of the actual Underground Railroad and imagines it in a somewhat alternate history where you have essentially, you have slaves moving out of the Deep South progressively a little bit farther north and there's sections that are in uh 
in North Carolina, in South Carolina, in Georgia, if I'm remembering correctly. I think they're, are they moving out of Alabama or Mississippi? Anyway, they progress through different states. And all of these states have different sort of differently extrapolated ways of dealing with slavery and racial hierarchy. And I think it's South Carolina, for instance, where they've tried to set up this kind of like what they consider more progressive segregation. Or you have like North Carolina, I think, is the one where like black people are totally banned under penalty of death. And there's an incredibly brutal regime around that. Point being, he's doing a kind of speculative fiction around around the Underground Railroad. And there's a constant sense in which and to be clear, things are always falling apart in this story. Oh, by the way, I should be, to be even clearer. There's a literal railroad underground that people are running <laughs> and has been built that runs throughout the southern states in tunnels. Um, that's important, too. But I bring it up only because the thing about Whitehead is, um, you know, having met him, he's very much a, he's a polished professional class guy, Harvard graduate, very cerebral and witty. I think a lifelong New Yorker, essentially. Um and he, his, his sensibility generally, I would say, is very comic, very buoyant, very witty in an urbane way, both as a person and a writer. And I think that Underground Railroad, which is a brutal, sad book in a lot of ways and tries to be unflinching, and there's some just really graphically awful scenes in that book. Um, I, I think that was, that's an example of him trying to work through how can I be part of this more unflinching tradition of examining the kind of the tragedies and horrors of race relations in the United States. And I think it succeeds in a lot of ways. I think that Sower in some ways is the opposite. It's, it's perhaps, or not the opposite, maybe the inverse where it's like you have a, a writer who perhaps we're suggesting might've been naturally more dour and pessimistic. In fact, her author bio quoted in my copy said like she, she described herself as a pessimist when I'm not careful. Yes. Right. And to me that suggests that she's, She's a pessimist. She has a dark view of a lot of things, and she's trying to not be that way. So you have Colson Whitehead that I'm more familiar with, who is, I would say, I'm not saying necessarily a sunny guy, but his sensibility is more that way, trying to, I think, push himself into a little bit more of the darkness. This is sort of the darkness trying to work its way towards a kind of optimism. Yeah. So there, I, I'm, sure he's, I'm sure he's probably read a fair amount of Butler, uh, I would guess. Mm -hmm. And so, anyway, that's a digression that just to illustrate where I see Butler is coming from, it, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it's, it's a good digression. I've, I've read a lot of, uh, of Butler interviews over the years. And I'm, I'm pretty comfortable in, in my assessment of her as a negative person, but your, your point is a very good one. Like you, you can write about negative things and not have it be internalized. I mean, that, that makes absolute sense. I just, uh, man, I, I always wanted something better for Octavia. Like e even growing up, I would read these sad books and just get more and more like, well, can, can I can I send her some cookies or something? I remember asking my mom if we could send Octavia Butler some cookies when I was like nine years old. <laughs> really? That early? Wow. Oh yeah, yeah. It's, oh, I um, her first her first public published book, Pattern Master. I got almost as soon as it was off the shelf. So I read it when I was nine years old, and I was like, "This is really making me sad." But it was it connected to me so well. I mean, because she she is a writer who writes simply in a way that somebody younger could understand, but it does not condescend. And I think that's like, she was not writing young adult fiction, but a, a com, a good, uh, a, a well-read young adult could grapple with it. And like that, that really made her special for me early on. Yeah, I think describing her as a non-condescending 
young adult author in some of these cases at least is probably pretty accurate and pretty interesting and and yeah she she believes that as you said she believes that uh you can be accessible very widely and that you can also give people credit for different kinds of intelligence not just cerebral intelligence but moral intelligence emotional intelligence um yeah i read that in her so so tell me a little more about that though so you're saying that you got her first book as a child when it first came out and you basically read her through her own whole through her lifespan as a writer for a lot of your life. Oh my, I never really thought of it that way, but that's absolutely true. I, I, I followed her from beginning to end. Um, so yeah, when I was, when I was, uh, nine years old, you know, the library is always going to feature in these because yeah, you know, my, my mom would take me to the library and that was a good way to get me to shut up for like three to six hours. Right. And so she'd, she'd bring me to the library, set me loose give me a 15 book checkout rule and I would go out and, and find what 15 I 15 books. Yeah. I was, I was allowed to pick up 15 books. Uh, we were there, you know, every two weeks or so. So that like, like what else, if, if a kid doesn't play outside what's left. Right. So I did were, were a lot you, of reading. You were reading a book a day. Yeah. Wow. But I mean, think about the age though. A lot of these books were like, you know, 70 pagers about baseball or whatever, you know? Fair enough. I'm still impressed. Uh, <laughs> fair enough. But uh, yeah, I had a, there was a, uh, a librarian who sort of took a shine to me, who was, you know, who always tried to uh, direct me towards certain things. And hindsight makes the phrase radical feminist bub up, bubble up in my head. But she certainly did get pattern master in front of me probably before I was ready for it, but like, I don't care. It's like, I wish I could remember her name. I'm so grateful for the opportunity. And I just started reading Octavia Butler as her books came out. And, um, Kindred was a mistake. I I think I should have waited to read Kindred until college, but I did read it when I was about 10 years old. And it was, uh, I mean, I had nightmares. I, I just wasn't, I wasn't emotionally equipped to read it. And I, I actually, I should be grateful for that. I mean, I guess like a, a book, a book about topics like that should be unbearable. I mean, it, it's like a child's primer to slavery shouldn't be a fun book. But at, at any rate, um, she tended to write in series. So with the exception of Kindred, like she wrote a whole series called the Patternist series, which was basically about um uh, psionic powers and a group of people who developed them and developed a breeding program and basically became, uh, the new royalty. Like everybody without power were controlled slaves. And then you had these Royal Royal families of people with these abilities. And then you had, uh, their opponents, which were basically people of, uh, infected with this disease, which gave you superhuman abilities. So it was sort of like, uh, uh, I think she was trying to talk about the Cold War with it. Uh, and then she had the Xenogenesis series where she explored gender. And the basic idea behind that is an alien race rescues us from a nuclear war. And what they want from us is to, uh, merge their genetic cold code with ours they're basically traders and over, over the millennia they develop they they share their genes with other races gain new abilities that sort of thing but from our perspective as human beings what you're describing is the end of the human race 
genetically intermixing with this strange alien species. Our kids won't look like us anymore, and that'll be it. And so there was a whole series about our interaction to that. And like, do we eventually surrender? Do we develop our own control group that goes off on its own? And that was the the series where she talks a lot about hierarchy versus um, uh, ver- versus uh, intelligence. And then finally, you have her pa- her uh, parable of the sower face that. She only got two books in before she stopped. She actually didn't write the third book because um, she was too depressed to write it. Um, and she, yeah, yeah. And so she ended up, she ended up writing a book called fledgling about vampires. Uh, still a better love story than twilight. I had to say that, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, yeah, I mean like, and I, I just described 10 books and, um, that's all you get. Like over the course of her entire career, that's that's what we get from her. And I can think of authors that I like that chunked out fifty books. Like Terry Pratchett, where was he? He 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 had to be in the high sixties, right? Well, here's here's a question I want to ask you. Um, when we were we were texting about this, you mentioned there was some controversy about Butler's personal life around the time of her death, and that that upset you. So, um, you know, without uh, screaming into the microphone, what can you tell us about that? Well, um, Octavia was probably the most private author I can think of. Like a big a big focus of her sort of professional face was not not sharing her life like you, you knew you knew what city she was living in, but like. She didn't she didn't talk about partners. She didn't talk about kids. She didn't talk about any of that stuff. She left it off the table by design. And uh, the L.A. Times made it a part of the message of what her books were about and that sort of thing. And everybody who was close to her family was like, "Okay, the the things you were saying about her are a not true. And B, the whole point of Octavia Butler is that she has excluded the discussion of her personal life from her books. Right. So back off. And the L.A. Times actually edited out all of that stuff from the obituary, for which I'm grateful. It's it's people. I think I think it's a it's a basic modern fact about courtesy and respect for other people is that people get to self-identify. And that means that if they don't want to identify, that's fine too. And uh, Octavia Butler was definitely one of those people who didn't want you to know what her personal life was like. And I think that's okay. Yeah. I mean, that's so, yeah, it's interesting. I, I didn't know coming into this that you knew so much about her and been reading her through her whole writing career. This, this would be a lot to think about. And I'm actually looking forward to reading Kindred at some point. We should do that one at some point because oh, yeah. it sounds really fascinating. I feel it's a pretty good place to wrap. What do you think? Yeah, I'm there. Um, okay. Well, thanks for well, thanks so much, Pete. Yeah. I, yeah. Thanks, everyone. Um, I think this has been a good, solid discussion of a really interesting writer. And I hope if you haven't read her, you will give her a chance because there's a lot to be gained there. Fantastic. Thanks again. <laughs>